listening to the Hey Friends Community Church Podcast, recorded March 1st, 2015. Power Play. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Last Sunday, we looked at a prayer that the disciples pray after they're released from prison. And there's three aspects to the prayer. The first one, first aspect is that they acknowledge that God is Lord of all creation, that God holds all things in his hands, that he is in control. He created the earth, the sky, the sea, and everything in them. The second part of the prayer is this acknowledgement that not all is right with God's creation, that that there is sin and that kings rise against kings and people plot against God. And then the third part of the prayer is their role. And they pray that God would make them bold, that God uh, would, would embolden them and give them strength so that they might be participants in what God is doing. And we talked about how they see themselves as being part of the renewal of all things, not just believers who stand by and watch God in action. They, they see themselves as participants. And so that, that's what we looked at last week. And then the text goes on, and we're not, I'm, not, I'm skipping Ananias and Sapphira um, this week because uh, in this series, because a few months ago we actually looked at that story all by itself. But to give you a kind of little snapshot, so after they pray that God would make them bold, um, the text says that they collected all, all the money, they would sell land, and they, they were bringing it to the de- apostles, and they were distributing it to anybody who had need, and everybody was taken care of. And then there's the story of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira who sell their land and lead the disciples to believe, um, or try to lead the disciples to believe that they had given them everything. But in fact, they had actually held back a portion for themselves, and it turns out that they die. And, and we see this as, as, as maybe what happens when we're not all the way in, when, when we don't fully uh, commit to God, that, that it's not real salvation. Uh, um, it's, not, it's not true. It's not real. Uh, we have to go all the way. Uh, and you can't lie to the Holy Spirit. You can't manipulate God. And you can't manipulate God's people. And so we continue on. And we see that the, the church is growing and building in numbers. Uh, Peter is so popular that people are bringing um, the people who are sick, people who have illnesses, um, who have demons, and bringing them out to the streets on stretchers in hopes that Peter might cross over them, that his shadow might pass over them, they might be healed. If you have your Bibles today, turn to Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 17. The church, they're still meeting in the temple, and they're, and they're building up momentum. And we kind of get this image that, that in the temple that there's now two groups. There's these believers, these new Christians, and then there's everybody else, the, the Jews. And we, we, we get this sense that there's a little bit of this divide. And let's see what happens here in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. It says this, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Now this is the driving force behind our story this morning. The question is, what are they jealous of? Why are they jealous? Uh, Why are they not rejoicing that people are being made well? Remember, a few weeks ago when Peter and John were going into the temple and they healed the man that 
uh, was born lame and he had never walked before and they say, you are healed. And he stands up and he walks in with them. When they face trial for that, Peter's main argument is that this is a good thing. And the person doing the good thing is Jesus. That's his main argument. So there's this question, why are the Sadducees filled with jealousy? Why are they angry? So because they are filled with jealousy, they are thrown in jail. And while they're in jail, an angel of the Lord comes and opens the door uh, for them and says, all right, go back into the temple and tell all the people about this new life. So at daybreak, they're in the temple and they... Uh, as people began arriving early into the temple, they're, they're, they're there preaching. And meanwhile, in the morning, the Sanhedrin gathered together, and uh, they're supposed to be um, putting these disciples on trial. And they send somebody to go and bring, them, bring the disciples to them. And, no, and the, the temple, or the, sorry, the jail is closed. There's nobody, um, the, the doors are locked, but the disciples aren't in there. I imagine it's like a scene um, in the Shawshank Redemption. Right when when it's time for the roll call and and the the door slides open and nobody comes out of Andy Dufresne's uh, cell, Andy Dufresne, where are you? We're gonna thump your skull if you don't come out here. And and they go and they look and it looks as if his his cell is undisturbed, but there's no Andy Dufresne. This is this is what they they walk in and they see that the cell seems undisturbed, the door is locked, but there's no disciples. So they report this back, and, and they're a little perplexed and a little worried about this. Then somebody points out, hey, those guys you're looking for, they're back in the temple. The place where you took them from, they're back there preaching. So, so in the text, it says that they went and they grabbed the apostles uh, to bring them back, but they wouldn't use force uh, because they were so popular amongst the people that if they were to use force, they were worried for their own safety. So they make it look like that the apostles are... are are going on their own accord. They just take them with them without force. And this is where the text picks up in verse 27. Follow with me. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. In ancient time, rulers, and I guess not just in ancient times, but today, when, when there's a new ruler, one of the first things they do is they have to establish themselves by creating a new law or being law themselves. Peter's language says God exalted him prince and savior, um, and that he is bringing Israel to repentance and forgiving their sins. So what God is doing, the way God is establishing his rule as king is he's offering forgiveness of sins. This is the rule of God, um, according to Peter. Now, it's interesting. The word prince in the Greek is also the same word for the word author. And so we get this sense that God is now doing a new 
thing, God is bringing life um, and taking our human story in a new direction. God is establishing something new. The old temple system has failed to bring repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's just old. It's not working anymore. God is doing a new thing. He's going off the rails completely. In the words of Ozzy Osbourne, I'm going off the rails on a crazy train. And that's what it seems like God is doing, doesn't it, too, to the establishment. That God, he's going in a new direction, that he's taking these people off. He's going off the tracks, on the rails, and it seems crazy. This is not the way God works. This isn't the way it's supposed to be, but yet it's happening. God is not on the same tracks and is doing something completely new. Now notice how they respond, verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Their response is the only play they have. The, their, their only response is, is, well, we could kill these guys and maybe that'll stamp them out. But really, Christ has come and conquered death. And so they really have nothing. They really have no play. They have no power left. Death has been stomped out. So what are you going to do? Kill them? And then there's this Pharisee named Gamil. He's a Pharisee and he's well-respected and he speaks up. And he recounts two movements where the leader got a bunch of followers and then eventually the leader died. And then eventually the followers disbanded. And his main argument is this. If it's from God, then it's not going to work. It's going to fall apart. Or sorry, if, it, if it's from God, this is going to happen. If it's from God, this is gonna this is gonna take place whether we want to or not. But if it's not, it'll die. We don't have to worry. It'll eventually die out like these others. Now, I think here we sit in Capay in 2015, 2,000 years later, as a church who's telling these stories, who prays to God, who worships the the risen Christ. And I think we can see which movement lasted. It lasted. It is of God. It's happening. God has been working in the church um, and using his church for the building of his kingdom. Let's go on. Verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from the house house to house they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that jesus is the messiah the driving force behind this whole story has to do with jealousy and power the disciples are gaining power and there's a movement happening people are lining the streets just to be healed and this seems it seems as if the establishment is losing power Killing and flogging are the ways of letting people know who is in control and who has the power. And it's interesting, scripture has a lot to say about power. In fact, we could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the first sin. The way Eve is tempted in the garden, she is told that she will be like God. That means that she will gain power that's the belief that's that's the trick if you participate in this if you take this you will have power skip forward to matthew chapter 4 
and Jesus, he's in the desert. He's wandering, and the devil tempts him. And notice how the devil tempts him. And it says this, And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is not tempted. We are not tempted like Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted like we are tempted. Did you get that? We are not tempted like Jesus is. Jesus is tempted in the ways that we are. The ways that Jesus is tempted is for to gain power and might. And it's the same thing that tempts us, isn't it? Whenever we see a crisis in the in the history of the church, the Great Schism, the Reformation, secularization of the 20th century. The major cause of this is by the people who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. Let's be honest with ourselves here t- this morning, right? We're not, we're not a perfect church, right? Uh, many people go looking for the perfect church. We are not the perfect church. Neither is the one next door or the one next to that. Um, there's no such thing as the perfect church, And one of the things that I find is in our disagreements in the church generally have to do with who has power, who's in control. And so people who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless and humble, Jesus, the fact that we argue about who is in control and who has power must raise some questions. We should raise our eyebrows at this. Henry Nouwen writes this, The long, painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. This is is the main driving force of what's going on here in our story. There's this painful thing that's going on that, that people who have power are losing it. And rather than choosing love over control are going after control, aren't they? They're, they're, they're reaching for, for ways that they can control people. Well, if we kill them, maybe we can beat them into submission. And so the question is for us, how do we respond when we don't get what we want? How do we respond when we feel like we are losing control? And what I think we tend to do is we tend to exercise the power that we have. Think of a husband and wife. Husbands and wives argue. There's going to be disagreement. And one of the things about being in a relationship, in a, in a committed relationship, is that you hand the other person so much power. They know so much about you, intimate details about you, and that is power. And what we choose to do with that power can hurt our spouse. If we get into an argument, maybe maybe we... We hold back our time. We hold back our time with that person or, or attention. We, we allow ourselves to be distracted by other things and ignore them. Or, or maybe we withhold intimacy. Think about our places of work. Have you ever had that boss that you just hate, that you can't stand, that rubs you the wrong way, that says the wrong thing at the, exactly the wrong time? And how do we respond to that? 
Maybe maybe we choose to do the bare minimum amount of work, but just enough not to get fired. Or, or maybe we do this, we'll take those opportunities to throw our boss or those over us under the bus when we have that opportunity. Th- this is taking the power that we have and, and using it for abuse and to control and to get what we want. Is this the way that we are supposed to be? Turn your Bibles to John chapter 21, starting in verse 17. The resurrected Jesus is talking with Peter, and three times he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The third time Peter responds, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus responds in verse 17. He says, feed my sheep. And he goes on. Listen to these words. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. This is the opposite of how we live our lives, isn't it? Right when we're young, we can't wait to get into college and experience that independence, and we can do what we want. And, and then eventually we graduate from college and we get that high-paying job so, so we can pay taxes, right? And, and then we, we, we go and we get that job so we can pay taxes and we can earn more money. And, and with more money, we could gain more freedom. We could choose to live wherever we want. We can buy the things that we enjoy. We could go on vacations we can do whatever we want. It Money will buy us this luxury of control, of power. And then eventually we get to a point where we start to look forward towards retirement. And what do people say when they get to re- retirement? Then they don't have to go and work for the man anymore. You can go and do whatever you want. But what do Jesus' words say here? says, when you were younger, you did what you wanted. You dressed yourself. But Peter, when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. When Peter is older and wiser and supposed to be at the top of his game, Jesus says that somebody else is going to lead you. You're going to go places you do not want to go. What is he saying to Peter? You will have less power you will have less power and i think the power that jesus is referring to is the power that this world offers peter says in our story today that that as he's walking people just wanted to be in his shadow and they would be healed But following Jesus is like this. Following Jesus is giving up our freedoms, giving up our power, and laying them at the foot of the cross and submitting to God. This is not a bad thing to give up power, to give up control. 
because we worship the author of life, the one who takes dead things and causes them to rise. Ezekiel 37.5 says this, This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. This is the promise that we have from God, the one that makes dead things come to life, the one that shines light in the darkness. God is in control. God holds all things. He has the power, right? That's what we prayed last week. God is in control. And sometimes the way that we seek power and control is not how God intended us to be. And we see in this text, we see this, the difference in how Sanhedrin treat the disciples. After the disciples were beaten, it says that they considered it joy. After they had submitted to the powers that be, they considered it joy because they got to suffer for God. Maybe this morning, God is asking some of us here to lay down our power at the cross. Maybe there are some things we need to let go of. Some things that we try to control, we try to manipulate, we try to get our way. May we submit to the cross this morning. Let us go before the Lord.